Well, needless to say, I hope you realize that with this many options, all that labels itself as Christian is not indeed Christian. There are not 80,000 Christian books available on Amazon. It's important you realize this because as we saw a couple of a couple of weeks ago, you are what you think. What you put into your soul is what you become. You'll soon emulate and follow the kinds of teachings you consume. So it's vital that you fill your mind with good, right, biblical teaching and truth. And further, with the, the vast number of resources available to you today, why would you waste your time with anything that is not excellent, with all that is available? But we need to ask the question, how can we judge between what is good teaching and what's not? How do you know? How can you tell if that, that book or that Bible study or that preacher or that website is good, is helpful, is right, or how do you know if it's bad? If we're honest, most of us probably judge these things based on our feelings. Does it make us feel good? If it, if it makes us feel good, if it kind of aligns with our thinking, um, if, it, if it is energetic, if it's entertaining, then it must be good. But is that the best way to judge? Is that the best way to determine whether something is good or bad? Now, you might recall as Paul began First Timothy, he presented the characteristics, the marks of false teachers teaching that we should avoid. He said in chapter one, verses three through seven, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God. That is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so we spent some time looking at the marks of good and bad teaching there at the beginning. But now, as Paul is finishing up first, finishing up first Timothy, he returns to this topic this topic of good teaching and bad teaching. Because from the foundation of the church, there's been a problem with bad, false teachers. And as a result, Paul seeks to equip the church with the means to judge between the good and the bad. The ability to judge between good teaching and false teaching. And so as we continue in 1 Timothy 6, Paul presents for us the marks of false teachers and the marks of godly men. So let's look at this text. We'll begin with the final phrase of verse 2 and read all the way through verse number 12. Paul says this, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. 
imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul reminds Timothy of his mandate to present good teaching to the church. He says, teach and urge these things. Everything he's covered up to this point, Timothy is to proclaim to the church there in Ephesus. You see, the cost of false teaching is grave. So Timothy is to give himself to the presenting, the proclamation of right teaching. Paul then moves into the ways to identify those who are false teachers, the ones who are damaging the work of God. These are the kind of teachers, the kind of resources, Bible studies, books, podcasts that you should avoid. So let's examine the marks of a false teacher. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. At the outset, we must come to the conclusion that there are indeed men and women claiming to be teachers of God, claiming to have uh, good resources, to be given good resources to the church that are actually false teachers. They're fake. They're wrong. And they're dangerous. You see, just because something claims to be Christian, just because something says that it is Christian, does not mean That it is. In fact, I would go so far as to say in our culture today that most of what claims to be Christian today is not indeed Christian. Further, these false teachers never present themselves as false teachers. They don't show up and say, I'm going to give you a pseudo Christian book that's going to lead you away from God. Read this book. Listen to this message. They don't present themselves that way. They always come with teaching. That sounds nice, that feels good, aligns with our, our thinking, our selfish, carnal thinking, and it leads us away. Christ warned us, warned us of this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You see, we can identify these false teachers by their fruits. We can identify these false teachers by the marks they present. And so in addition to the marks that Paul gave us in chapter one, he now presents us with four more specific marks we are to look for, which help us identify false teachers. The first mark he gives us here is that the false teacher fails to teach the word. The false teacher fails to teach the word. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness. In other words, false teachers are not committed to scripture. Now, they use Christian words. They speak about God. They speak about Jesus. They speak about the Holy Spirit. They feign allegiance to the word of God, but the foundation of their ministry and their teaching is not the word of God. They will either add to it or take away from it. They'll interpret it outside of its context. They'll cherry pick passages or some deny it altogether. Others add revelations to it. I have a special revelation from God, but they don't take the scripture and exposit the text, the full text, to present God's thoughts on an issue. They're an inch deep and a mile wide. It says they teach a different doctrine. It's a Greek word you'll recognize. It's the Greek word heterodidoscaline. In other words, heterodox, heretical, or false teaching. They use the word when it agrees with them. And they discard it or ignore it when it doesn't. It says they don't agree with sound words of Jesus Christ. They don't attach themselves to it. This word agrees with doesn't mean just that they consent or acknowledge it. It means they attach themselves to it. They, they love it. The two phrases, sound words of Christ and teaching according to godliness are synonymous. The first one emphasizes the content of their teaching they're in alignment with the words of Christ. And the second is the effects of their teaching. It, it results in godliness. The sound words of Christ refers to the words of God. Those are the words of Christ. The Bible. He's given them to us. These are the judge of truth. Feeling. Emotion. Philosophy. Politics. Or whatever works. Is not the judge of truth. First Timothy or second Timothy one thirteen, Paul challenged Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, follow faithfully the word of God. See, false teachers are not faithful to the Bible. They emphasize other things rather than the word. They emphasize experience. They emphasize feeling. They emphasize politics. They may even emphasize sound uh, sp uh, things that sound spiritual or emphasize worship, but they don't emphasize the Bible, the very words of God. They say things like, well, we know from experience this is true. We look around and we see that this must be the case. But they don't go 
to the word of God. Too many teachers today, as we face issues of justice, issues of rights, rather than going to the word and saying, let's take a look at the texts of scripture. Micah 6 talks about justice. Let's talk about what that text says. Romans 13 talks about rights. Let's talk about what that text says. They say things like, well, we just know what it feels like. We just know what it should, how it should work. They don't emphasize the word of God. But if they don't emphasize the word of God, they're wrong. This is why we continually emphasize that when we gather, we read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word and we preach the word and we picture the word so that we can go out and live the word because it is all about the word of God. Beware of the church that spends most of its time singing and little of its time preaching or praying or reading. You see, false teachers are not truly interested in the word. But in order to identify these false teachers, we need to know the word. Christians have to be grounded in the scriptures. Those who know the word will easily and quickly spot false teachers. It's said that with the secret service, those who look after for counterfeit money, the way they train them to understand and ident quickly identify counterfeit money is they have them handle day after day after day right money, authentic money, because they're able to quickly then identify what is not authentic. In the same way, we are to be in the word, to know the word so that we can quickly identify what is contrary to it. So to this end, let me encourage you with something, with a few things. First, you know, we read a lot of books about the Bible. We love to do Bible studies, other books about the Bible that don't actually require that we open our Bibles. But rather than read books about the Bible or use Bible studies, let me encourage you to use the Bible itself. Read the Bible. That is the power of God. Put down that Bible study and pick up your Bible. Read a section over and over until you understand it. It might be that it takes 30 times, but that's okay. There's no time limit. The more you understand the word, the better you will be able to identify those who are not faithful to it. You must know the word. Secondly, let me encourage you with this. Everyone needs to read the word. This is not simply for smart people or people who love to read or super Christians. If you are a Christian, you are to read the Bible. Not just Sunday morning, not just in Bible study, but every day. For if you do not, you will fall prey to false and foolish teaching. Because false teachers deny the word. So it's vital because true study of the word leads to godliness. He says the sound words of Jesus teaching that accords with that leads to godliness. The ultimate test of any teaching is whether it produces godliness. Teaching not based on scripture will result in an unholy life. Show me a church 
filled with people who are in conflict and acting in, un, in an ungodly manner. And I will show you a church filled with people who are filling their lives with false teaching. Things not in accord with the word of God. The word is the foundation of the truth. The word is what determines whether or not something is worth listening to. The word is the source of authority. So focus on the word. The second mark of false teachers is that he is arrogant and ignorant. He is arrogant and ignorant. Verse four, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. John Stott said this, indeed, in the end, there are only two possible responses to the word of God. One is to humble ourselves and tremble at it. The other is to harden our hearts, stiffen our necks and reject it. And because the false teacher rejects the word of God, they've hardened their heart to it and they understand nothing. It says they're puffed up with conceit. They're arrogant. They're proud. They believe that they have all the answers. They've done the philosophical work. They've discovered the secrets. They've figured out the answer. But it's not actually from the word of God. They don't take you to the text of scripture because they don't need that. They've got it. They're arrogant. But the problem is that because they're not faithful to the word, which is the foundation of the truth, they're actually ignorant. They know nothing. The church father Christostom said, presumption therefore arises not from knowledge, but from knowing nothing. For he that knows the doctrines of godliness is also the most disposed of moderation. In other words, those who follow the word are humble because they recognize that God is the source of all life and truth, not themselves. Those who don't rely on the word are marked by arrogance and ignorance. Through their mental gymnastics, they've come up with the answers to life. However, because they're living in their own world, a world that they have made through their mental prowess, through their philosophy, through their moralizing, they're completely out of touch with reality. They think they know. They might sound like they know. They act like they know. But they don't know. They're ignorant. <coughs> Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They think they know, but they don't know. Just because someone says something with confidence doesn't make it right. Just because someone says something that sounds good doesn't make it right. If it's not in accordance with this book, if it is not drawn out of the exposition of this book, it's ignorant, it is false, and it is wrong. Beware the false teacher who gives you the secret, the answer, 
They figured it out. But the secret does not begin with, is not filled with, and does not end with. Turn your Bible to this text. Third, the false teacher loves controversy. The false teacher loves controversy. Verse 4, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissensions, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. It says he has an unhealthy craving for. This word is a rare word. It occurs only in the New Testament here. But it's a word that means to be sick, to be ailing with, to have a serious illness, a a morbid craving for something. You see, when a person rejects sound, healthy words of Christ, they end up with sickness, with unhealthy craving. I mean, it says the men are stricken with such a disease, they'll make mountains out of molehills. They love controversy. The word controversy means speculations, preoccupation with with pseudo-intellectual theorizing. They love to speculate about things. They're preoccupied with sounding really smart and being up on the latest theories and thoughts. They love to argue about life. They're quick to argue about politics, life, theology. In today's world, social media is their haven. They love to comment under everyone's posts with their own arguments, their own opinions. They live for conflict. It says they loved quarrels about words. It's an interesting statement. It's a combination of the word logos, meaning word, and the word maxios, meaning war. Literally, this is they love War words. They love conflict or strife with words. Some say it may even refer to disputes not about words, but where words are the weapon. They love to have that snide comment. And the result of these controversies and and word wars is destruction. He says they produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They result in envy. In the conflict, each side begins to become envious of what the other has. The the other person has a following. They have people agreeing with them. I need to get that. When they fail to sway others to their cause, they're filled with with ill will towards those who don't agree. And the result is dissension. The individual is unable to admit that they might be wrong. Since they're not interested in what the Bible says, they can't allow that to settle the matter. You can come with the word and say, well, here's what the text of Scripture is saying. They'll say things like, well, I don't believe that was what it actually means. I don't believe that's what it's actually saying. And when they fail to sway others to their cause, they're filled with envy. So they go on the offensive. They begin to argue and fight for their position and their rights. This then turns to slander. The name-calling begins. 
Rather than trust the validity of their arguments, they have to resort to name-calling and calling the character of their opponents into question. This, in turn, results in evil suspicions. They cannot assume good motives of the opponent. The opponent is simply evil. They cannot want good for others or or legitimately being uh, attempting to help others. No, instead they have to be we have to be suspicious of their motives. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians 13 that this is the opposite of Christ-like love. There we're told that love hopes all things and believes all things, believes the best of others. When one is bitter towards another and hostile towards them and slanderous of them and continually suspicious of them, the result can be nothing other than ongoing conflict. They can never get along. There seems to be no hope of any kind of resolution. This is tragic when it happens in our world. We see it in our political systems today, that, in, that progression. You can see it in the political discussions. I've seen it among, frankly, many of you in your political discussions. And that's sad. But it is tragic when it involves the word and spiritual life. Because the end result is spiritual darkness. It says it's among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They're depraved. They're corrupt in their mind. That mind refers to a person's inner disposition, their moral and intellectual capacity to make a decision. The result of all this is that they are corrupted in the very thinking. They're unable to make any kind of good decision because their their thinking process is corrupt. And it's corrupt because they are deprived of the truth. They have been robbed of the truth. Those false teachers, those carnal people are so completely occupied with themselves and their own interests that in their heart, there is neither time nor room for God and his revealed truth. And when scripture is brought to the situation and presented in context, they simply dismiss it as, well, that's just your interpretation of it. Their minds are corrupted so that they're unwilling to listen to the word so that they end up actually depriving themselves of the truth. One man said, when reason is morally blinded, all correctives to unworthy behavior are banished and the mind becomes robbed of the truth. So beware people that are quick to argue. Beware people who are always unhappy Always angry. Beware the people who dismiss the word of God because it doesn't fit what they think. That's the sign of a false teacher. What are we supposed to do with these people? So we come across them. What do we do? Well, as we will see later, you ignore them. He tells Timothy in verse 11, flee from these things. So when that person makes that ignorant comment on your social media post, don't take the bait. Delete the comment and ignore them. When the individual comes onto your TV, turn the channel. 
Throw the book or that Bible study away. Don't look to see if it'll help someone else. Just get rid of it. Throw it away. Don't waste your time with foolishness. Perhaps you might be thinking, but, but listen, I can persuade them. I can help them see where they're wrong. No, you can't. Notice Paul's words. They are arrogant and ignorant. They are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They willing, they willingly and willfully reject the word of God. And so they will not listen to reason. Finally, we note that the false teacher lacks contentment. He says at the end of verse five, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Behind the false teacher's facade, behind their supposed intellectualism and false piety lies the real motivation. Money. Second Peter 2.15 says, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Bor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. I've been appalled at the amount that supposed Christian speakers demand when they're asked to come speak. Let me, let me pull back the curtain a little bit on Christian ministry for you. Many Christian speakers, in fact, most, demand thousands of dollars, specific dietary guidelines. We've even had them request specific, not request, demand specific types of bottled water in order to come speak at the church or at an event. That's a sign of carnality. That is a sign that they're in the ministry for what they can make from it. On the other hand, good teachers, godly teachers, those who are truly servants of God have never once asked what they'd get paid. In fact, when we've told them, here's what we're going to pay you, they say, wow, that's way too much. They've said, no, I want to come for free. You see, they're paid by their church or ministry and the speaking engagement is simply an arm of that ministry. They're content with God's provision. They're content with whatever comes. But the false teacher is marked by discontent. They see godliness as a means of gain. So Paul gives us the call for contentment. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul contrasts the false teacher's desire for gain with true gain. You see, godliness is gain. It's even great gain. Providing you mean spiritual gain. And providing you are combining it with contentment. You see, the godly minister recognizes eternal gain over earthly gain. The false teacher must have earthly gain. The earthly gain, though, misses the reality of eternity. Paul argues that our entrance to life and our exit from life demonstrates the foolishness of living for the things of this world. He says, we brought nothing into the world. And we cannot take anything out of the world. You came in with nothing. You're leaving with nothing. This is what Job said in Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return. The Lord gave. 
the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The writer of Ecclesiastes tell us he came from his mother's womb and he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. When you were born, you didn't even have a stitch of clothing. And when you die, you take nothing with you. Everything you've worked for in this life, all the fun toys that you have, your campers and your four-wheelers and your homes, all the nice clothes. When you die, you take nothing with you. You leave them to your kids. Ecclesiastes says you give them to the kids, you spend them like the wind. They don't go. No, instead, we must learn the lesson of contentment. God is in control and will give us whatever we need. This is the message of Philippians 4. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, that God provides the flowers of the field with clothing. He provides the birds of the air with food. Don't you think he'll care for you and take care of what you need? So he tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You cannot add to your life by worrying or desiring. No, we need to learn to be content. One man said, true godliness has contentment for its companion. Since we cannot take life's luxuries into God's presence, we should be content with life's necessities. Greed can find no place in an attitude like this. You see, contentment in the present depends on a belief in a future in which it, which is independent of material things. You can only be content if you believe that there's a future coming that has nothing to do with right now. That has nothing to do with the material things you have right now. That you can't take it with you. You see, people are truly rich when, they're, when they are content with what they have. The richest person is the one who doesn't need anything else because he trusts God, that God will supply his needs. You see, contentment is vital because there's a danger to desiring to be rich. Tells us in verse 9 those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He says the desire to be rich is the root. The desire, the purpose, the longing to have material wealth. It causes man to fall. They fall into temptation they would not otherwise face. A snare laid by the devil. And having fallen, they plunge beneath the surface into ruin. It means to drag to the bottom, to drown them. There's a progression in this logic. The desire to be rich leads a person to fall off the cliff into a special temptation. And the temptation in turn leads one into the devil's snare. And once caught in the snare, they're plunged beneath the surface with Foolish and harmful passions resulting in ruin and destruction. Because as Ecclesiastes 5.10 tells us, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, 
nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. As a Roman proverb put it, money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Not only does it cause you to fall, it's also the root of all kinds of evils. One man said the desire for riches has been the cause of numerable frauds, dollar sign marriages, divorces, perjuries, robberies, poisonings, murders, and wars. The craving, the things we crave after, we desire, we long for these things, it results in us wandering away from the truth. It leads us astray like a straying planet away from the foundation of the word. Those who have gained this world, they've gained the material possessions, they've gained the world, they have all kinds of stuff in this life, but they forfeit the next. As we saw in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Instead, the fact is contentment does not come from owning whatever we want, for there's no end to whatever we want. A Christian approach to life can never make a central feature the acquisition of material things. Christianity is not about stuff. These words are a timely reminder in our culture and in our time. Our culture and our world, and we find this even in our own hearts, begins to base success and value on possessions. We see that as a status symbol. I've got to have the name brand stuff. I've got to have the nicer things because it makes me look good. Much better to get the things you need from the thrift store and spend the remainder on the kingdom of God. To be content with what you have. What does this mean for believers? Well, first, believers must constantly realize that the Lord owns everything you have. You don't actually own that. It's God's. James 1 tells us every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. It's not yours. Second, believers need to cultivate a thankful heart. Be thankful for what you have. Be thankful. Don't worry about what you don't have. Be thankful for what you do have. Third, Believers need to learn, learn to distinguish wants from needs. A lot of times we say, I need that. No, you don't need that. You just want it. We need to distinguish between the two. We need to discipline ourselves to spend less than we make. If you can't do it, cut up the credit card. If you don't have it, don't spend it. Because it's not yours. And finally... Believers need to give sacrificially to the Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. See, false teachers are marked by a failure to follow the word. By arrogance because of it. And ignorance because of it. They're marked by a love of controversy. Always arguing. Always having to be right. And a lack of contentment. When you see that, Run from it. If it's not founded in the word, don't waste your time. We'll stop here today and finish up 
next week. Let me conclude with four so what's based on today. I'm going to put Drew on the spot here. It's slide five. Okay, skipping ahead. So if he misses it, it's my fault. Number one, make the word of God the measure of truth. Make the word of God the measure of truth. Truth is not whether it sounds good or whether it seems to work in life or whether philosophy or anthropology or experts tell you this or that. Truth is found in the word of God. Make that the source of truth. The Constitution is not the source of truth. The Bible is the source of truth. Make the word of God the measure of truth. And when that person claims to be Christian and says something that is not in accordance with this word of God, you reject them out of hand. If I say something that is not in accordance with this book, you reject me out of hand because this is the source of truth. Number two, remember that good teaching produces fruit. Good teaching will always produce fruit. If, uh, if you are part of something and it is not helping you grow, it is not good teaching. Number three, Remember that good teaching keeps the main thing the main thing. Good teaching keeps the main thing the main thing. Now, what's the main thing? As you look at scripture, what's the main thing? The gospel and the kingdom of God. That's the main thing. Good teaching keeps the main thing the main thing. Number four, learn to be content with what God gives you. If that teaching is telling you you could have your best life now, Wash your face off, girl. You'll be better. Run. It's teaching you lack of contentment. It is false. It is wrong. And it is destructive. It is from the devil himself. Run. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity that you have given us to look at your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we ask that we would understand and be aware of false teaching, that we would see and rightly judge the spirits, whether they are from you, that we would not settle for second best, but we would strive for excellence, that in all things you might be made to look as good as you really are. We do love you. We thank you for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.